All right, uh, where we're going today, we're going to take a look at uh, another passage that the lectionary gave us. Um, wondering about your spring. Today is the first day of spring. Makes me think a little bit of spring cleaning. Wondering how your garage is looking right now, how your closets are. <laughs> what you got in your closet, people? That's what I'm asking. Uh, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, um, we're catching up with Jesus. He's uh, sort of in his last stretch before he heads to Jerusalem. And we're in Luke chapter 8. So let's check this out and see where we are today. Oh, chapter 13, sorry. Uh, so uh, that's not right. Let's see. Is there anything before that? Yeah, right there. Let's try this one. Here we go. So about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Now, this and the next thing that Jesus is going to talk about, we don't have any third-party evidence that these things happen, which doesn't mean a lot. It just means that nobody other than the Bible wrote these things down. Uh, but it probably did happen, and probably something happened that caused some attention. Jesus was from Galilee, and the gist of this is, is they had traveled from Galilee down to Jerusalem and were making some sacrifices, and um, Pilate killed them, and their blood mingled on the altar of the sacrifice. That's entirely likely. Uh, Pilate was no friend or, or, uh, or fan of Judaism. Uh, he really ticked off um, Jewish people by bringing in uh, Roman artifacts into the temple itself, uh, which just was a complete desecration. So Pilate has no friends <laughs> in, Jew in Judaism, and so this could very well have happened. So if you get the gist, uh, what's happening here is this happened to people, and Jesus is asking the question that people are wondering about. Jesus isn't asking the question for himself. He's bringing the question up that he knows everybody else is wondering. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Have you ever been in a situation? Have you ever thought about a situation? It could be a terrible accident. It could be a disease or whatever. Maybe it's been you who's had it. I bet. I bet bad things have happened to you at times, and you thought, what did I do to, to have this happen to me? Why is God doing this to me? That's the same kind of mentality that's going there. Is this how God works? Jesus bringing up this question. Jesus goes on. He says, is that why they suffered? Because they're worse sinners? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. It's an interesting twist. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Again, no third-party evidence. But Jesus goes on, given that, were they, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Jesus is really getting at a thing here uh, where the point of him bringing these things up is that life is simply unpredictable. And we don't know what is going to happen day to day. He's not endorsing wrath of God. He's not endorsing transactional thinking at all. In fact, he's trying to correct it. He's essentially saying it's a big fat waste of time for us to be wondering uh, why one person is, you know, has really bad luck. And this person over here seems to be getting uh, off scot-free. In fact, there are scriptures that talk about how the rain falls on both the bad and the good. So Jesus would say, it's just a fool's errand to be wondering why this happened to this person. Now, I will tell you, that there are plenty of uh, <laughs> loud voices in pulpits still today in America, that whenever a fire or an earthquake hits Napa Valley or some other natural disaster happens somewhere else, 
the word from the pulpit is this is God's judgment, either because that community did something or because our nation has gone astray. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Doesn't that sound like good news? Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Well, Jesus is not for that. He's not about that. He's just saying, don't waste your time even thinking about that because you could never possibly know. And the character and nature of God is good and loving. So that's not how God is going to operate anyway. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you, let the God of wrath die. I really don't think that God exists. I know there are scriptures that talk about this, but, but that's not that exciting of news. That's not good news at all. In fact, in fact, that would just make it any other dead theological history book among many. What makes the story of Judaism and Christianity unique and its scriptures so compelling is that while you have the ideas of God of wrath, which is so lizard brain and how we think about how the world works, so transactional, so how we run the world, we project that on God, I believe. What's so compelling about the Bible is that even though you hear these voices of our own anthropomorphism, you have this other, other uh, vein, this gold thread that starts at the very beginning of the book of Genesis and makes it all the way to the last chapter of Revelation, which is saying, but God is good. God is loving. God is with you. That's the God that Jesus promoted the most. That's the God of love. This kind of transactional thinking, were they such horrible sinners, it doesn't fit the equation. And so Jesus is not talking about repent or else you're going to get your butt kicked. He's saying, repent, turn it around, stop doing the stuff that you know is destructive in your life because we never know how long we have. That's the gist of his answer to this question uh, that is before us, that he's raised. And then he tells a story. And to help you really appreciate the story, I provided you a snack today on your table. You are welcome. So we have Fig Newtons. How many love Fig Newtons? Come on, man. It's health food. Eat as many as you want. It's okay. So enjoy that. How many of you have enjoyed a dry fig in your world in your time? Of course. There, have you ever, anybody here has never eaten a dried fig? It's okay. It's a safe place. All right. I know they look terrible. They're delicious. Just trust me on this. All right. And you'll be better for it. All right, so anyway, eat a fig newton or eat an actual fig because the story that we have today is about a fig tree. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taken up space in the garden. And the garden, gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. Now, there are some commentators that want to make a lot out of the three years being maybe that's a reference to Jesus's ministry and want to see Jesus as the gardener here saying, oh, let's just give it one more chance. Well, that's fun, you know, midrash stuff to do. 
but it doesn't really fit the context of what Jesus is talking about. He just got done talking about this major question that human beings have of when bad things happen, is it because God did it to them because of something they did to God or did to somebody else? Jesus is saying, no, that's not really it. And the whole point that he's getting at, again, is take care of business. Do the things that you need to do that you know you need to do. Repent, turn it around, do the healthy things in your life, let go of the unhealthy things in your life. And then he tells a story about a fig tree that wasn't producing. And what, is, what happens in the story? Now, the gardener says, well, let me put a little more into this. Let me see if I can get some vigor back in the soil and see what happens uh, for this tree. That fits the story. Interestingly, um, there is another parable just like this in the ancient Near East, but it had a different ending. It ended with just cut it down as taking up space in the garden. So it's interesting that in Jesus' use of this parable, which was probably widely known uh, in the area, another ancient Near East parable, Jesus adds this thing saying, hey, there's another chance you have today. Let's fertilize the things in your life that need fertilizing, and let's see what happens if we do. So the point of this story and this whole thing that we have today is extremely practical. Do what needs to be done now for your health, for good. Not because God's going to come get you and smite you if you don't, but because God has created you. You, you have the capacity for life. You have a true self somewhere within you. To develop that is to really, truly live. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus is to really, truly live. And so those things that you know are out of line with that, kicking to the curb, those things that you know you need to develop that look a whole lot like Jesus, that look a whole lot like love, develop those. Help get you into this zone a little bit because we're going to get super practical here in a second. Um, I, I heard this uh, interview this week, which is pretty good. This is um, uh, Women's History Month, as you know, and it turns out we have an intersectional uh, example here for you to have. And there's one particular thing uh, that I thought was just really cool about this person uh, that we have. So uh, might need a little more volume, Bob. We'll see. Uh, but uh, hit the next slide, Trudy. Thank you very much. And I'm going to enjoy some fix. It's Women's History Month, our new series, we're calling it Changing the Game. Is profiling extraordinary women making an impact now and on future generations, as Beyonce says, who runs the world? Girls. This morning, we're going to introduce you to one of the pioneers behind the Moderna COVID vaccine. Her name is Dr. Kazmikia Corbett. She's taken on vaccine hesitancy, and she spent her career fighting for equality in healthcare, landing her a spot on the cover of Time Magazine. You go, Dr. Corbett. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provided funding for the studies that Dr. Corbett contributed to. Melinda French Gates has long admired Corbett from afar, which is why she chose her to be part of our series. Jamie Yuka sat down with both women at the nonprofit eBell that's in Los Angeles, which has a mission to educate and uplift women. It's still very surreal to me. I still cannot believe we as a team did that. I was told that I was one of the first people to open a vial of the vaccine. At um, just 36 years old, Dr. Kazmikia Corbett worked night and day with a team of scientists developing Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine in record time. Why is Dr. Corbett a game changer? Oh my gosh, she's an absolute game changer because when she was at the National Institutes of Health, she really laid down the backbone for the COVID-19 vaccine. Being honored by people like you and having people say that out loud is certainly so surreal. What's also surreal? Listening to Dr. Corbett's timeline once COVID-19 was discovered. It was almost from January 6th on, no one got any sleep. <laughs> Have you slept lately? Um, 
I slept under the plane here. <laughs> All of us have now become familiar with the term global pandemic. Both these women say what motivates them is the dedication to improving people's health around the world. Because we had a whole number of virologists and epidemiologists and had many, many, many partners in the field, we jumped on it to say, my gosh, whatever gets developed here needs to be done for the whole world in mind, not just the high-income countries. Do you think we're going to get better about seeing those disparities and fixing that? I was an undergrad when the HIV pandemic was in an uproar. And one thing that I saw was that it really only mattered what neighborhood you lived in. What we have to do is continue to keep the conversation open because the same types of disparities that we saw with COVID-19, we saw with HIV, we've seen with so many other diseases. Working toward equal distribution of the vaccine was just the beginning. I hope you guys are rested and peaceful and healthy and vaccinated. Corbett has spent the last two years encouraging anyone and everyone to get the shot. You said something, you said vaccine hesitancy, and I know you don't like using that term. I don't. You like vaccine inquisitiveness. Mm -hmm. Why? By calling them vaccine inquisitive, you give them the liberty to be the scientist, actually. Ask the question. Ask the question. And if I can, I will answer it for you. A lot of these people have just never had their opinions heard before. You know what I also heard in that, though, is that as a woman, young woman, you are allowed to have a voice. That is one of my daily affirmations. Is it? Yes. I am strong. I am beautiful. I have a voice. Say it out loud every single day. You'll start to believe it. And then when someone doesn't believe it, you won't care. Mm. There's a lot of doubt when you're creating something new and you absolutely have to have a team because then you have each other's back when you hit a dead end or somebody else then maybe figures out the piece you couldn't figure out, right? It's right. almost like you're working a puzzle. Corbett found that very first puzzle piece pretty early on. I was 16 and I wanted a new pair of shoes that my parents were like, no. <laughs> You're not getting those. Um, and if you want to have a job, then it must have an educational slant. And so I went and I got a job and uh, worked in this laboratory at the University of North Carolina. And I just fell in love. And did your parents affirm to you that you could be anything you wanted to be? All the time. No. My dad used to say, oh, I don't care what you are. Just be the best at it. I had that exact same message from both my parents. You can be anything you want to be. You should go, definitely you're going to be college going and we will take on the debt. I remember talking to my dad and he said, just go where you're going to be loved. Mm. And it, it was almost immediate that I knew where I needed to be in the next step. You just don't see as many girls in technology and in science, and certainly you don't see as many people of color. And I really feel like it's hard to be what you can't see. And so I think you're a huge role model. I don't think, I know you're a huge role model to so many young girls. Yeah, You know, it, it is an honor to be inspirational mm. for sure. Wow, wow, wow. Melinda French Gates and Dr. Corbett, a one-two punch. Yeah. I, I love the two of them together. I, yes. think, I think it's really great. And Vlad and I both said this at the same time when they said she's 36. <laughs> we we're all like, did. whoa, 36. Was, wow. She did nothing else for the rest of her career. She would have already had a historic career. And that's yes. an amazing thing at age 36. I also yeah. love her daily affirmations. I, yes, I'm, I'm strong, strong. I'm beautiful. beautiful. I have a voice. I have a voice. And I've always been somebody who's like, do I really need 
to repeat daily affirmations to There's myself. Power when, in that. There is power in yes. this. Absolutely. Yes. Really and she said, after a while, you start to believe it. And if people don't believe it, it won't matter. Yeah. I wrote that down too. Yeah, me too. Long, I'm beautiful. I have a voice. Thank I hope it applies to all of us. Yes. And I'm going to try. I'm going to try. For that. Nicely Lord. done, Jamie. Yeah, really nice piece. Really great. And she's definitely paving the road for mm -hmm. other girls going into science. It's a, it's a pipeline that needs to be full and is now. There's so much in that story that is related to the fig tree thing. Did you catch it? Remember the deal was the gardener pleads with the owner, give it another year. Let me fertilize this thing and see what happens. What I'm hearing in this story is you've got parents, so <laughs> there's just so many different little nuggets here. You've got parents who recognize that they've got a potential fig tree in their hands. What are the best things that they can do to fertilize uh, this, this young woman so that she can shine, so that she can flourish? They gave her permission. They celebrated her. They made it possible. Uh, Melinda Gates says her parents said, well, you're going to college. We're going we're gonna to own that as much as possible so that you can fly. So rich. This woman didn't become who she was all by herself. She became that way because she had supportive people around her encouraging her. And so naturally, what did she come up with? What's her daily affirmation? Do you remember it? I am strong. I am beautiful. I have a voice. I am strong. I am beautiful. I have a voice. That sounds like a very God-oriented thing to me. It really does. You're made in the image of God. You are beautiful. You are filled with the Spirit of God. You are strong. You have hands and feet and vocal cords, which God does not. You have a voice. That's not a bad daily affirmation for us to fly through. The other reason I wanted to, to do it was just, you know, anytime we see, because our world is not yet equal in this regard, anytime we can celebrate um, a woman that is at such success uh, in a field that is underrepresented and African-American uh, to boot, we need to. Uh, because we're not there yet. And being able to recognize and celebrate that uh, to lift us all up uh, just makes good sense. So anyway, uh, she inspires me, and I hope it did a little bit for you too. Jesus is extremely practical with this, as I mentioned. He's really asking the question, what in your life needs to change? What do you know needs to change? And what are you going to do about it? Uh, there was a book that came out 10 years ago called One Month to Live. It was by a pastor, I think in Texas somewhere. I did a series on it. Some of you were here at that time and may even remember it. We had a new couple um, 10 years ago that uh, came because of that book. They wanted to hear what it had to say. And that couple is Carol and Johnny Tolan. <laughs> and they're still with us uh, today, which is really cool. Uh, so in this book, um, he just lays it out there. And it's, it's good books, worth reading. Uh, says, if you knew you only had 30 days left of life, what would you do differently than you're currently doing? Now, there's some things that will immediately say, like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to finally eat the entire pizza or the entire pie or <laughs> the whole half gallon of ice cream. And I don't care anymore. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. But it really gets to much deeper places because it starts asking question, what really matters to you? And most of us are going to, when we think about that question, it's worth journaling about, by the way. It's worth spending some time with. You're probably going to recognize that there are uh, some uh, things in your life that you deeply value and love people in your life, and you're going to do everything in your power 
uh, to be with those people as much as possible. Uh, there are going to be uh, some things in your life, some people in your life uh, that uh, you don't particularly care for. They're not, they're not your closest group, and you're not going to work too hard to be with them, are you? Because time is really precious. There are going to be some relationships that you recognize that, that are really important to you that are fractured. And because you have such short time, you're finally going to make the effort to do whatever needs to happen to redeem it as much as possible. Because you don't want that on your books. Not because you're going to be judged by God, but because this is life. And life is about love. Love is the source of life. It's what we, it's what we call, it's what we name as those things which are most important that give life meaning. Doing just the simple challenge of wondering, if I had a short time, what would I do differently is really important. <clears throat> and I dare you to do it. I encourage you to do it uh, because it's very sobering when we do. And one thing, I'm just going to throw this out there just to be extremely practical. I have a crosswalking friend that uh, calls me out on the not being practical enough all the time. And I, I actually really appreciate it because the way I think and the way my personality is wired, I focus a lot on being and hope that when the being in here changes, when we become transformed in here, it automatically is going to come out here and, and our, our vision and our hands and feet and all that stuff. And that's true. But there's a whole different part of psychology that says, no, sometimes it comes the other way. And sometimes it's the behavior itself uh, that actually transformed the inside. So it's got to be both. So I'm just going to drop a couple on here uh, for you to think about. And I wonder, um, let's talk about your money first, because we all like to come to church and talk about money. <laughs> I'm not talking about support for the church, although it's always welcome and we deeply appreciate it. How many of you, um, this, and this, by the way, uh, really came to my attention maybe 10, 15 years ago, probably at least that. Um, how many of you uh, love uh, your family? There were some hands that didn't go up, but totally understand. <laughs> we're here for you. It's a safe place. Uh, how many of you love to give money to the government and your taxes? Right. Uh, a few of you do. God bless you. Thank you so much. You're keeping our roads paved. We appreciate that. Well, um, my parents did, uh, did me and my brother and sisters a great favor. Um, somewhere along the line, they found out that it would be a really good idea for them, uh, and they've had this in place uh, for, for decades, be a really good idea to put their house in order so that when they passed away, uh, they could do the loving, easiest thing for their children and not lose a bunch of money to the government because they already give enough money to the government. And so they put their entire holdings, whatever, I mean, their checking account and their property in a trust. You might be thinking, why am I talking about this in church? Because it's a very loving thing to do. I'm a pastor. I've done hundreds and hundreds of memorial services. I've seen what money does to people, and I've seen what poor management of money does to families. One of the wonderful gifts my parents gave uh, me and my brother and sisters was just two years ago when I was um, right before COVID uh, came on. In fact, so that was 2019, December of 2019, and I went back for my niece's wedding, and we had a family meeting, just the, the grown-up kids. 
And my dad laid it all out for us. He said, this is, this is where all the documents are. We already kind of knew this was an order, but he's like, I'm, I want you all to know and all to hear this is where things are. This is, this is a trust. This is who to call, all of that stuff. And I'm telling you that because you may not think of it and think of how important it is. But I can tell you that if you don't have that kind of thing in place, when that time comes, and it will, it becomes an incredible increased burden uh, to the ones that you love to have to figure out where everything is. And then if it's not in a trust, you find out you got to go to court, which can take a very long time. And then you find out you lose a lot of money, which is bad stewardship. And it's not where you want that to go. This is just one practical thing I'm throwing at you that for a few hundred bucks, you can do so much uh, for the people that you love that they will appreciate for a very long time. I know you didn't come to hear about trusts, <laughs> but it's one of those things that we put off because we think, oh, we'll get to it someday. We don't even like to talk about it or think about wills and, and uh, you know, medical directives and all that stuff because it, it freaks us out a little bit. We want to be in denial about our own, uh, our own lives. But I'm guessing our medical professionals here would agree with me that such documentation is a gift. So I'm encouraging you to do that. That's what I'm talking about. If you know you have a limited amount of time, this is one of those things that we would naturally say, I'm going to get my house in order in this way. And I already talked about relationships. If there are relationships that you know can be mended, I'm guessing that if you really, really, really did have that short of amount of time to live, you would look at those arguments and the basis for those arguments, you need to be like, I just don't care anymore. It's not worth it. I want to know if it's, if it's a sibling, if it's a dear friend, you'd be like, I'm over it because I want to give that person a final hug. I want to tell that person I love them. I want the fence mended. Now, I know there are issues in our lives that are deep and complex and are just not that simple. I'm not suggesting it's all, you know, sweep it under the rug, pretend the horrors didn't happen. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think you get my drift that in certain circumstances, we, we drag our feet even in unforgiveness because we think we have the luxury of time. And Jesus is saying, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. And by the way, this might freak you out, but it'll remind you of where we were in January. Neither does God, <laughs> because there are so many things that are happening at all times. And God is with us as we go through it, but not dictating it. And because we have freedom, cannot know what's happening. And so we have to, we have to think about this stuff. If it's a healthy thing for you, if it's a marriage thing, if it's a family thing, if it's a relational thing, if it's a personal life thing, if you figured out that, you know, if you really had that short amount of time, and my, my guess is if you were, were able to look at a given week that you have or look at your month, I know there would be some things that you would just let go right now. And you'd say, that is a waste of time. That show is not, that series, that Netflix binge is not worth it. <laughs> and you just would stop and you'd start doing something else. Use this as a catalyst to get you thinking. Because Jesus is saying in this text, repent, do the things that you know you need to do. Turn it around. Uh, one thing that helps with this, uh, James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. I did a series on that a few years ago when that book uh, came out. It's a perennial global bestseller. It's really good. I get a, an email from him once a week on Thursdays, which is always excellent. 
and one of the things that he talks about, he, he's this guy that he kind of turned his life around in college with uh, habit formation. And he understands this stuff about how we can set different things up in our lives so that the habits we want to last actually have a chance at being productive and so on and so forth. And he's got all kinds of ideas. But one of the things that he offered this year is this uh, workbook uh, for us to process through. And if you want to copy this workbook, I don't think he would mind. I'll, I'll call him. <laughs> I don't think he would mind <laughs> if I sent it out to you because he was offering it to free to anybody who just said, hey, I want this thing. And it's sort of like a, a reset. And one of the most important questions he asked was that January when a lot of people are thinking about new habits. As he said, you know, I know that a ton of people are going to say, well, I really want to lose weight or I really want to get healthier. I want to drink less or I want to eat healthier or I want to go on vacation or I want to save more money. All these different things that we come up with. And he said, that's all fine, but don't start there. The first question he asks is, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be at your core? Who do you want to be? Because when you decide who you want to be, then you can start to develop the things that match up. It's like you reverse engineer those things. Well, I want to be a healthy person that doesn't have blood pressure issues anymore. And so you think, okay, well, how do we accomplish that? You reverse engineer it. So you're all of a sudden, you're, you're naturally thinking, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out and walk more because that's one of those things that's going to be helpful. I'm going to watch what I'm eating because that's going to be helpful. I'm going to you know, divert some stress stuff, get that out of my life because that's increasing things. And, be, and because you're talking about who you want to become, your motivation isn't on, oh, I just have to, but it's, it's something that you actually want with your life. And so if you want the book, I'll do it. But I think that's a really important thing. Who do you want to be? And as Jesus followers, there's a who <laughs> that we have claimed we want to be like, and that's Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. It's not just signing off on the right beliefs so that we can get to heaven. Uh, confidence and hope in an afterlife certainly plays a role. That hope, I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, certainly plays a role for us and is deeply meaningful. But the point of it is, the point of it all is, Jesus came to talk about the kingdom of God, about what does it mean for us to live as if, as if God really was our king and not the rulers of this world. What would that look like? Now, for centuries, uh, we have thought that when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, he was primarily talking about heaven. And there's an interesting reason why. In Matthew's gospel, which was written primarily with Jewish people in mind, uh, he wrote, so this is uh, right out of a chapter of a book that <laughs> I'm leading on, on Wednesdays right now, um, because he was writing to a Jewish audience, he was uncomfortable writing the name God uh, in his text. I have a friend, uh, Rabbi Ira Book, uh, who is one of the chaplains at uh, the Queen right now. And every week, a couple times a week, I get this thing from him, you know, his reflections of the day. And it's a loosely organized series of quotes that somehow ties together into one theme. And anytime he comes to the name God, he doesn't write God. He writes G-D. Because for Jewish people, uh, it's irreverent to use the name of God so casually. And so Matthew, when he's writing to a particularly Jewish audience, he knew that that would be problematic. So he didn't talk about the kingdom of God, didn't say Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. He said Jesus was talking about the kingdom of heaven. Well, if we keep reading kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, then it's very easy for us to naturally conclude that the things that Jesus is describing is what's to come, not what can be now. And that's exactly what happened with the church. 
We started thinking about what will be one day rather than what was supposed to be today <laughs> if we would get on it and use the skills that we have to encourage more and more of the kingdom of God here and now. Now, my guess is you know the Sunday school answer so that if I asked who here wants to be more like Jesus, everybody's going to raise your hand and say, I do, I do. And I think that's generally true. I think most people have a very fond association with the person of Jesus. And I would guess that there are areas of all of our lives that it's very easy for us to be like Jesus. For instance, I think for all of you here, you showed up today, so it's relatively easy for you to be like Jesus in practicing a regular rhythm of showing up in community uh, for a service of worship and teaching and meditation and all that. So you did it. You were like Jesus today. If you weren't last week, well, that's too bad. <laughs> but you repented, and now you're here, right? <laughs> so good job on that. I bet you're all a lot like Jesus when it comes to loving people that you really, really love. I bet you're really loving toward the people that you really, really love. Am I right? Of course, you're, of course, because they're easy to love. However, there are parts of following Jesus that we may not even recognize because we don't want to see them, or we may not do them even if we recognize them because they're incongruent with who we are, not who we want to become, but who we are. So uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I called it his stump speech, uh, because I think it's a sermon that he probably gave in many, many settings to large audiences. And I think the reason why uh, the gospel writers were able to remember it so well is because they heard it so many times, and it was deeply profound. In that whole uh, long sermon, he, he does a lot. And probably what we have was just the tip of the iceberg. I imagine him taking an entire day to go through what would take us 20 minutes to read. And he would, you know, expand on all these thoughts. But a lot of what he had to say turned things on its head. Ways that we think about the world and life and what really is. He shifted our thinking. Uh, things like blessed are the poor. He's like, well, how does that even work? And he changes it to help us recognize that God uh, is with the poor, even though their circumstances culturally suggest otherwise. It goes on and on in different veins. And there's one part, and you've heard me talk about this many times over the years, where he gets into stuff like turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. And of course, if you've been paying attention, you know that Jesus is not talking about just being a nice person, but these are actual examples of nonviolent resistance that go the extra mile. You do that because that's something you can do to kind of get back at the Roman soldier who's making you carry his gear for a mile and turn the other cheek as a way to tell the person who just slapped you across the face uh, as a cultural insult from a person of higher position to lower position. Well, you just you just equaled the playing field so that the person wants to strike you again. Now he has to treat you like an equal. These are things that a casual reading of the text we totally miss because we think that Jesus is just talking about being a nice person. Well, we are supposed to be nice people. But what if there's another element there that isn't as easy for us to integrate? What if, what if following Jesus gets us out of our comfort zone a little bit? And maybe that should enter our equation and our thinking as we think about how we might live the rest of our lives. I had a conversation um, one time, um, some time ago, 
And we're talking about a delicate social issue, um, not so much for Crosswalk anymore. It had to do with LGBTQ inclusion, which we are open and affirming here at Crosswalk and treat LGBTQ uh, completely equal with anybody else, which is great. Uh, and anyway, we're talking about this, and this, this particular person was struggling uh, with why, why we should do anything with it. And, uh, you know, and we're just talking about some of our values here at the church, and now this is a deeply held value at the church. And the person said, I, yeah, I just, I just don't get it. it. It just doesn't really affect me that much. So I don't know, I don't know why, why I should care. Really, that's that's what the person was saying. I just don't, I don't really care that much, because it doesn't affect me. Was the statement, and I think what Jesus is saying back uh, to us is, it matters to God. It matters to God, and if it matters to God, it matters to us who claim to follow God. If it matters to God that all of God's children are treated equally, really, really equally. If that matters to God, then that needs to matter to the ones who say they're following God. If we say our heart should beat as God's beats, then our feet <laughs> should march where that would take us. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, this gets us frustrated because, uh, you know, this gets into some dicey times. In fact, Jesus was killed uh, because of such things. He was trying so much to bring in the kingdom of God and standing up for things that were clearly wrong that it got him in trouble. Good trouble, to coin a phrase, but trouble nonetheless. And I'm wondering how you ride with this. How do you deal with this, Jesus followers? I wonder if Jesus would say something to us, those of us who just have and I get it, it's totally human. I've been there myself. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. It's the human condition. It's what we do. We're radically individualized in America more than any other country at any other time in history. We've come to think that spirituality is about me, myself, and I, as long as I'm okay with God, it's all good. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is we, not me. And so what do we do with this then? As Jesus followers, people who say, I'm a Christian, I want to follow, I'm a little Christ. I want to be a follower of Jesus. That's what we are. I want to bring more of the kingdom of God in the world because that is when life sings. That's when, that's when it gets fixed. That's when the harmony comes in. That's when equality really comes. And yet I know that there is this struggle, this tension within us as normal, everyday human beings saying, yeah, but, but the stand up for this or write a letter for that or to talk out loud about this. That makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't, it doesn't deal with me. I'm not a person of color. I'm not a woman. I'm not gay. So why is it my problem? I'm just saying out loud what people think. And maybe it's you that thinks this way. And I'm just imploring you to really ask the question, who do you want to be? And if the who that you want to be really is Jesus, then have you considered what Jesus did with his life? And are you willing to match up your life with his, who was also human, 
and see where there are congruities and celebrate those and grow those, fertilize those even more. But are you willing to look at some things that Jesus was about, about forgiveness, about reconciliation, about justice, about the way he truly saw everybody equally and lived it out? Are you willing to also follow that Jesus? Uh, most of you know my story, so I'm not going to go into the whole depths of it, but the short story is I almost walked away from the ministry after about three, four years here. It wasn't anything to do with crosswalk. I mean, it was, you know, we were rebuilding, rethinking things, and that's, that's stressful, but it was really a theology that I had been walking in uh, for a period of time, and I felt more and more like a used car salesman. I felt more and more like I'm just trying to get people to say the magic words so that they can know they're going to go to heaven someday and get the numbers up, get more baptisms in and blah, blah, blah. And it just felt so not compelling. And I'm not kidding. You know, I was, I was just thinking, I don't know if I can do this uh, longer. And then um, I went back into my doctoral program and finished up my thesis and I decided to study what salvation was. And once I found out what, what God was really about, cover to cover in the Bible, and what Jesus certainly modeled in doing that thing, bringing out what this thing is, the kingdom of God stuff, it changed me. It woke me up. It put a fire in my belly that's still there because it is so incredible. And I haven't stopped talking about it. And you're probably sick of it. But the working title of my thesis was converting the converted because it was so clear to me that the dominant message that is, that is prevalent in our world, which has been there for a thousand years and more, has been basically just get to heaven. Just do what you need to do to get to heaven. And I'm just telling you, that's not the full message. That's one part of many parts. If we are called and if we want the kind of life that Jesus had, which I think he modeled the very best life possible, I think he was fully actuated, you know, I think, I think he, he, he was peaking at Maslow's top level for sure. I mean, this guy nailed it in every possible way. And how did he do it? He lived out his values. He lived out the love of God in everything he did. So if we want that kind of a life for ourselves, isn't it simply logical? that we identified those behaviors that Jesus was about and really ask ourselves, are we following Jesus on this? And if we're not, reverse engineer it and start to wonder what that might look like. It's probably going to affect all of us in areas of forgiveness because that's a hard one for us. How do we understand grace, not being a doormat, not over-victimizing ourselves, but a powerful, deeper grace uh, that frees us uh, from ongoing horror from those who have harmed us? How do we really get there? It's going to mess with our money. You're not going to like that at all <laughs> because it's going to suggest that maybe we actually throw some of our nickels toward things of the kingdom to make sure that the good news continues to get told and expressed in a multitude of ways. It's probably going to have something to do with your time probably going to have something to do with the inputs in your lives. But if it's all the help you become the you you want to be, which is probably a pretty good reflection of Jesus with your DNA, I think it's probably worth it.
because you never know what's going to happen. It's not that God is going to smite you or, or, you know, send down a lightning bolt if you don't. I don't think that God exists. But I do know that this God who does exist seems to be one from cover to cover who comes alongside. And as with Abraham and Genesis says, I want to do things differently. It's going to require a different kind of life for you. And when it comes to Jesus, it's a, a wooing to the waters of baptism that totally shook up his life and changed his life for the better. It's transforming a guy named Saul into a guy named Paul, who his whole trajectory of his life was completely turned upside down. And I just wonder if we more and more fertilize this tree of ours, this Jesus tree of ours, I just wonder how much fruit might come and how beautiful our shared story might be. I love you, by the way. I think you're awesome. I think you're wonderful. I think you're the coolest church in town, in my humble opinion. <laughs> I'm just saying, man, how much more beautiful, how much more amazing. Not that that's what we're after, but because we are inviting more and more of what God is doing, and we're so all about how can we be more and more like Jesus and the love and grace of God just how much more infectious, that's not a word that we should be using right now, but you know what I mean. How much more infectious could we be to a community to know that there is love and good in the world and that there is a, there is a true north worth following, not because we have to, but because we can't help it. That's exhilarating, right? So let's spend a moment of silence together, uh, just see if we can hear what God's saying, and then we'll, we'll do a, a version of the Lord's Prayer before we get out of here. So I just invite you to close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. And again, take a deep breath. And what I'm looking for here is, God, actually, I'm, I'm helping. I'm asking you to help us by the power of your spirit that is at work in us all the time, that's already in us, already churning away, already loving us, already wooing us. Spirit of God, help us notice. What, what do we need to hear today? Are there like a top handful of things that we just now know we need to start doing or stop doing? Can you help us confirm those, God? If you really love us, what you do, you really care for us, what you do, I think you care about the minutia of our lives. I think you want it to go well for us. So I think you nudge us. Congregation, what's your nudge? Spirit, I'm asking you to give us strength and focus. Because it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy not to do the things that we know we would give up or that we know we would definitely do if we knew we had limited time. So God, help us with our focus. If there are hard talks we need to have with ourselves or people that we love or people that we struggle with, give us strength and grace. If we've built a life that's really just about our own puny little kingdom, and God, give us, give us strength to just wonder if there's something more that can be done and just 
creating a monument to ourselves. God, if there's time stuff, I could go on and on. Crosswalk, I hope you're hearing what the Spirit might be leading you to do. And I hope out of your love for God and God's love for you, you are loved. I hope you'll take them seriously as an invitation to life abundant. A life that changes your life, it changes the world, makes it a more beautiful place, more hopeful, increases your hope and love capacity all along the way. There's no downside here. So God, Jesus taught us this prayer about inviting the kingdom in. And so we choose to say it now out loud together. Next slide, Trudy. Let's say this together. Eternal spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. And the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Hope you had a good experience. We'll see you next week.